Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The African continent was declared polio-free just a couple of days ago which means that we're once again coming close to eradicating it from the globe. Yet in 2014, children started to go limp, losing control of their arms and legs over the course of days or weeks. This polio-like condition is called acute flaccid myelitis. And since then, there has been a larger and larger outbreak of the condition every other year. And that's not even the strangest thing about it. Hello, and welcome to Tiny Vampires, a podcast about disease, science, and blood-sucking insects. A member of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm Raven Forrest Ruscalzo, your host. This is episode 40. What happened to acute flaccid myelitis? This question was sent to us by Jesus Alvero, a Tiny Vampires Espanol listener, via Twitter. Back in 2018, the United States had its worst outbreak of acute flaccid myelitis in history. It was part of a strange trend. Since 2014, when the condition was named, there has been an outbreak in late summer through fall every two years. Because of this strange and still unexplained cycle, the condition makes it into the news and then seems to just disappear. Acute facet myelitis is a very rare condition. Even during its largest outbreak, there were 233 cases in all of the United States. It makes the news, though, because of its severity. It mostly affects very young children, under the age of 7. It starts with a cough and a fever. After being sick for a bit, they start to get better. And then suddenly, the child can't do something as simple as give a high five, this weakness in the shoulder moves down the arm over a matter of days or even hours, one arm typically being worse than the other. Sometimes it affects the hips and moves down the legs towards the feet. The condition seems to affect every child differently, 
with a range in seriousness from some tingling in one arm to total quadriplegia, with even the muscles of the eyes becoming weak or paralyzed. While there are some experimental treatments, we haven't found anything that has been proven to consistently stop the progress of this paralysis. Doctors support the children as best they can, and then pass them on to the care of an occupational or physical therapist as soon as they stabilize. Even more rarely, children die from acute flaccid myelitis if the muscles that allow them to breathe become paralyzed. Because the condition was just discovered six years ago, it's hard to say if these children can be expected to recover or not. The other reason acute flaccid myelitis, or AFM, is so newsworthy is the conundrum behind its cause. 90% of children who get AFM have some kind of viral infection before they start to get weak. The strange thing is, though, that the virus isn't always the same one. The mosquito-borne West Nile and Japanese encephalitis viruses, adenoviruses, which cause things like pink eye, and enteroviruses, which cause respiratory infections, have all been seen to cause AFM. Stranger still, these viruses aren't even related to each other. The viruses, regardless of which one, seem to damage an area of the spinal cord called the anterior horn. This section contains the main body of motor neurons. Motor neurons control our skeletal muscles, the ones that move our bodies around, as opposed to muscles in, say, our intestines that move food through. So damage to the anterior horn cuts off the communication going from the brain to the muscles, causing a perfectly healthy limb to go limp. By far, the virus most often connected to AFM is enterovirus D68, or EVD68. Since the emergence of acute flaccid myelitis in 2014, outbreaks of EVD68 and AFM were happening at the same time in the same places. 20-40% to 40 of the children with AFM test positive for that virus, more than any other. But the strongest connection that we've made is when biologists infect young lab mice with EVD68, and they develop the exact same symptoms as children with AFM. The reason why EVD68 doesn't have a properly useful name is that it was discovered back in 1962 in California. There were four samples collected from four children, and we still have the cultures of those viruses. Between then and the early 2000s, it caused only mild respiratory infections in kids, being indistinguishable from a cold, and that was about it. If a virus doesn't really distinguish itself, we tend to give it a functional name rather than one that's distinctive, like polio. Because we still have access to that original virus, at Sushi Kaida, 
one of the authors of today's paper, was able to compare the genetic sequence of the historic EVD-68 and our modern version. In their paper, Enterovirus 68 in Children with Acute Respiratory Tract Infections, Osaka, Japan, they stumbled upon a major change in the virus. A chunk of its genetic code is missing. To get into how they figured this out, and why it's important, we need to do a quick genetics review. DNA is made up of bases. A's, T's, G's, and C's. The sequence of these letters form the instructions for a single protein. Each set of instructions we call a gene. To make a protein, a copy of the DNA is made into RNA. RNA is made up of bases also, but is a lot more fragile. The RNA fits into a protein called a ribosome that reads this genetic code and uses it to link amino acids together to form this new protein. Viruses are just chunks of genetic code in a package of proteins. If you ever want to see two biologists fight, get them talking about whether or not viruses are alive and then just sit back and watch the show. Alive or not, Viruses have a genetic code just like all other living things, either made up of DNA or they skip a step and start off by using RNA. Enteroviruses like EVD-68 are RNA viruses with really short genomes, only seven to eight and a half thousand bases. To give you some perspective, the typical human genome is 3 million base pairs long, and fruit flies have nearly 140 million base pairs. It seems like Kaida and their co-workers didn't start off their investigation planning to compare the genetics of the modern and historic versions of EVD-68. They were trying to figure out the cause of an outbreak of respiratory tract infections in children. They swabbed a bunch of these kids, collecting samples of whatever was making them sick. With both the human rhinovirus and enteroviruses causing what we call the common cold, the investigators were looking to see which of these viruses was responsible. The researchers extracted the RNA out of these swabs and converted the code into DNA which is much more stable and easy to work with. One of the fastest ways to figure out which virus it was was to look for their specific genetic signatures using a method called PCR. We've talked about PCR before, but it's been a hot minute, so let's do a quick recap. Say you have a friend who wants your help figuring out what kind of tree is growing in their yard. You wouldn't need a photo of the whole tree, just the smaller distinguishing features, like a picture of a leaf or a flower or the bark. PCR lets biologists identify organisms without having to look at the entire genome, just the part of that genome that's unique to it. PCR is used to make a whole bunch of copies of small chunks of DNA. There are very few viruses captured on a swab, even if the patient is very ill. 
using PCR to make copies of the virus's genetic code gives us enough to actually see what's going on. A primer is a chunk of DNA that's only a few base pairs long. The sequence of those bases makes it stick to a specific spot on the viral DNA and lets the molecular machinery know exactly where to start making each copy. Through this process, millions and millions of copies of that identifying segment of DNA are made. Because the primers are specific to the viruses that they were looking for and won't stick to any other genome, Kaida just needed to look to see if the PCR made a bunch of copies or not to see if the child tested positive for that virus. After running a PCR, you end up with a tiny tube full of liquid for each patient. You can't tell if the primers attached to the DNA and made millions of copies or not just by looking at the tube. To see what's in there, first you have to add a fluorescent dye that sticks to the DNA. This allows you to not only see it with the naked eye, but also causes the DNA to glow under blacklight. Then, they put the DNA into a gel electrophoresis machine. This may sound unfamiliar, but I can almost guarantee that you've seen it before. Basically, any time you see someone on TV, quote, doing science, especially if they're doing genetics, they are using a pipette to put a colored liquid into a book-sized clear box that has wires coming out of it. That is gel electrophoresis, and it's not nearly as complicated as it looks. Gel refers to agarose gel, the same science jello that we talked about last month. Just like when you make jello, you use a mold to make a gel. The mold makes these little rectangular divots, or wells, in the gel, and then the dyed DNA goes into those wells. The wells are on one side of the gel. When it's put into that clear box, it goes in with the DNA near the negative electrode. On the other side of the box is the positive electrode. If you look at a gel under a high-powered microscope, it kind of looks like a sponge. When you turn the machine on, the DNA in those wells is repelled from the negative electrode and towards the positive electrode because DNA is just naturally negatively charged. As the DNA is pulled through those sponge-like holes, larger chunks of DNA moves more slowly, whereas smaller chunks speed through. By looking at a gel under blacklight, Kaida could tell a couple of things. First, if the primer's didn't attach and make copies, and there was nothing to see, then that child had tested negative for that virus. If there was a glowing bar of DNA, called a band, then the primers had viral DNA to attach to, and so there were enough copies to see. That meant that the child tested positive for either EVD-68 or the rhinovirus, depending on which primer it was. Kaida could also tell how large those copies of DNA were. 
because of the size sorting capabilities of the gel. And that's when they noticed something strange. For 15 of the patients, the primers were supposed to make copies that were 650 base pairs long, to indicate EVD-68. But they were noticeably shorter than that. Instead of brushing this size difference off as a fluke and just reporting the positive cases, Kaida and their colleagues decided to dig a little deeper and sent those samples off for genetic sequencing. When they got the sequences back and compared it to the sequence of the original EVD-68 from 1962, there were 24 bases missing. At some point, the virus had lost a significant chunk of its genome. This loss, along with some smaller changes to its genome that were later discovered by researchers in Kenya and the United States, makes this modern version of EVD-68 more like the polio virus and Zika, two viruses that we know are really good at infecting nerve cells. This gives even more circumstantial evidence that EVD-68 is the primary cause of acute flaccid myelitis around the world. Kaida's work was funded by the Ministry of Education, Culture, Sports, Science, and Technology of Japan. There's still so much that we don't know about acute flaccid myelitis, like why some children who get this modern version of EVD-68 get AFM and others don't. In fact, none of the children in Kaida's study were paralyzed but genetic studies of other children with AFM showed that they had this modern version of the virus. We also don't know why so many different types of viruses are all causing exactly the same condition, even though they aren't related to each other. We don't know how the viruses are damaging the spinal cord exactly, or how to stop the destruction of the spinal cord once it's begun. Knowing that there's a genetic basis for how the virus went from common cold to causing serious nerve damage is a huge step in the process of answering these questions. We've learned a lot in a relatively short amount of time. Researchers are using mice to try out different AFM treatments, there are possible vaccines for EVD-68 in development, and there's more research happening around the world every day. As of July 31st, there have been 16 cases of AFM in the United States this year. Because EVD-68 is a respiratory infection, it spreads just like COVID-19. So public health experts are hopeful that the measures that people are taking to prevent their children from getting the coronavirus, like washing hands and wearing masks, will also prevent them from getting EVD-68 and stop the trend of a larger and larger acute flaccid myelitis outbreak every two years. Our topic for next month is dengue. The mosquito-borne virus, also known as breakbone fever. One of our tiny vampires, Espanol listeners, 
wants to know if it's true that you'll die if you get Danky more than once. If you want to know about the topics that are coming up in future episodes, check out our website, tinyvampires.com, and go to the blog section. You can also send your topic requests there on the Contact Us page. The Agora podcast this month is the History of the Papacy podcast. The Catholic religion has had a huge influence on the world over the past few hundred years. Steve Guerra's podcast is a great way to learn about the church and the influence of the papacy from a historical perspective. Thank you to Title Card Music and Sound for our intro and outro music. Until next time, consider supporting a polio vaccination campaign. We are so close to total eradication, and you can be part of that. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.